when in the course of having guests demystify topics, it is very easy to overlook the fact that Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery are capable of demystifying things themselves. And on today's episode, Darmish will tackle the subject of composable banking. This will be the first in a series of special episodes that will tackle topics that Dave and Darm have written and opined many times about. So here are Dave and Darm, the two Ds. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify Show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome to today's show, and today I have a very special guest, Darmish. Hi Darmish, how are you? I'm a guest on my own show with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to do something which we haven't done for a long time, which is demystify a particular topic. Now, something you've been writing a lot about recently is composable banking or compostable banking, as I like to call it. So I'm really intrigued by this subject, and it seems to be something that people are really picking up on as well. So I wondered, can we demystify what on earth composable banking is all about? Yeah, of course you can. I mean, we can certainly have a good go at it, right? So in essence, some people argue that this is nothing new, but what composable banking is about is to think that everything that makes up banking from a software perspective is a set of components, right? That can be, in technical terms, orchestrated or sequenced dynamically, right? For example... I could choose a different credit risk management company to the one that I'm using today easily, right? So composing is moving up the layers of integration to make it easy to swap in and out bits of functionality, right? So this is the big challenge in financial services or in banking especially. There's so much that has to be done most banks will end up with you know lots and lots of suppliers and hundreds of bits of software that all need to talk to each other and all of those integrations have been done you know in isolation in using a variety of different mechanisms and technologies what composability brings to play is now consolidation of some of these approaches to integration but also a formalization in using one technology to bring stuff together as opposed to, you know, doing it parochially in different areas of the business. So partly I'd say, you know, it's a concept that I want to be able to mix and match functionality in my banking systems easily, but also there are solutions that make this real. So let's go back to, you know, the whole thing of it's a bit of a spaghetti for a lot of banks in terms of, you know, what their integrations are. I mean, is that because historically they started off 
doing a few things and then they've had to change and evolve and they haven't orchestrated those things to use another musical term at a kind of high level. They've just JFDI things as they've kind of gone along. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a really good question because it's always easy to shoot down the bangs for getting into this spaghetti architecture mess after the event, right? But if only we knew what we knew now, you know, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have been in this mess, right? So if you think that about 30 years ago, there are about 500 mortgage products in the entire market. And about 20 years later, there are about 5,000, right? Right. Also, about 30 years ago, banks really had accounts, mortgages, loans. You know, and today they have insurance, they have investments, they have credit cards. The list of products just goes on and on. Fundamentally, banking has expanded its portfolio of products. And that's been one of the reasons why, you know, the range of systems has expanded. Because in the late 60s, 70s, when paper ledgers for your accounts moved to mainframe computers, it was literally an account that was being tracked and managed, right? And then based on that, they were able to create new products. Now, an account like a deposit, you know, has a few factors like an interest rate, a current account has some charges potentially, it doesn't get too much more complicated. You could probably do that in one core system. Now, a mortgage, you could say, is a long-term loan, right? And it has some, you know, product features to it that are very specific to the mortgage. So what ended up is that banks typically bought a different core system to manage the mortgage because it had these different characteristics. I wanted to be able to define a mortgage and then clone it to create variants based on different rates or different term types, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, you know, core systems then got added because of different product types. Typically, a bank has a different core banking system for mortgages does it has to current accounts and deposits and also for credit cards because credit cards you know we do lots and lots of transactions and you need high volume processing kind of systems for that so we have different system for that now we've got different systems for different products but you know we didn't already do that we also have the idea that we want to service different customer segments differently right right in the mass market, retail banking is just current accounts, deposits, loans, mortgages. But then we wanted to get into wealth management or we wanted to service businesses and they have very specific products, et cetera. And you can start to see how the systems expand because of the individual needs of the variances that came in as banking grew out. And it grew out because of geographies, because of products, because of customer segments, also because of processes. As processes got automated over time, all of these things needed systems. Now you start to think, well, a bank like HSBC operates in multiple countries, in multiple customer segments, has multiple products. You know, this is one of the reasons why we get into a spaghetti architecture. And I presume that that spaghetti dare I say, you're not always using best of breed technologies, or I guess if you look at it now, you see what's there, you wouldn't describe some of the things they're using as best of breed technologies. 
Correct. And another really good question, because some people would like to think, even with a group architecture team, et cetera, that all decisions are made centrally. But actually, that's going to be really difficult to do on the scale of a global bank, right? It's easier on a smaller bank because literally they don't have the resources to look at lots and lots of stuff, right? So what you tend to find is that the larger banks would like to have best of breed because they want the ultimate flexibility in what they want to do. They don't want to be hemmed in by the product vendor or the solution vendor for their needs. And they have the resources to glue this stuff together, right? So they have big IT departments. The smaller banks don't have the same level of resources. So they want as much functionality from one vendor as possible. So the needs are quite different. But at the same time, let's say it's just about debt collection. That might be a very small part of the corporate banking capabilities. And therefore, it might not be a decision that has to be taken at the group architecture level. It can be made just locally because it's a small system. Right. But you've got another system that doesn't necessarily add up to the whole picture because in other parts of the organization, they're going to buy their own debt collection system because they need one as well, right? So the size of the organization drives this kind of not ideal situation. Say you're a fintech bank startup now. I mean, it's easy to become composable from the start in terms of the way you build things. But if you're a big legacy organization, why would you suddenly think, well, actually, I've got to change this and make it more composable at this moment in time? Okay, so one thing that's different now when it comes to composable banking is that we've already gone through, you know, decades of having to do integration, looking in, and typically in the past, as integration occurred, it was, oh, I'm just going to pass this file of data from one system to the other. We'll do it on a daily basis. They can work with that data that they need to share with us. Or no, actually, we need the data as it is live. So we actually have to talk to it, you know, as and when we need the data, right? But they'll look at that integration and they'll say, well, the best way to do this is to use this piece of software. But as the landscape grew and the demands grew, the complexity grew, each system might have a different way of providing integration, especially if it sat on a different technology platform. So remember, we went from mainframes to mid-range computers, to client server, then to the internet. These are big technology changes. So for a client server application, maybe based on Windows to talk to a mainframe, a specific type of mainframe required a different technology if you're talking from an IBM mainframe to a Unisys mainframe, right? And so you ended up with lots of different integration technologies. As we evolved, we discovered new ways of doing integration through things like screen scraping or using middleware technologies that try to consolidate this stuff. And now what we see is that integration isn't just about systems talking to each other, but it's about people in processes being involved as well as systems. And therefore we've got workflow, we've got integration technologies, and we've got some workarounds to where we don't have pure integration, where a system doesn't talk directly to a system. And those workarounds are things like robotic process automation or screen scraping, right? So that's where I mimic a user taking data from one system and rekeying it into another system. You know, it's not the ideal way, but it works and it may overcome a limitation in the way that two systems can talk to each other. So what we have now is after these decades of different parochial kind of individual solutions to kind of integrate one system to the next, 
to bigger frameworks that handle not only system to system, but human to system in workflows and also workarounds like robotic process automation, et cetera. And some of these processes, it's not just simple thing like onboarding a customer, which is actually quite complex, right? Because, you know, when you onboard a customer, you're checking the customer's identity, that you're doing a fraud check, you're doing an AML check, you're doing a credit check, you know, then you're doing a check whether they can afford the product itself, whether the product criteria is met by the customer, you know, it involves a fair amount of process. All these things typically coming from different systems. Sometimes when it can't be fulfilled, let's say I applied for credit and I'm marginally over the automated decisioning, it may have to go to a human being. Now it sits in his in-tray and I don't get an automatic response. You see the complexity, right? And so there's lots of players out there now starting to get into this space about composability. I wrote about one recently, Luther Systems, a few others that are starting to bring together everything into one place so that you don't have to use different technologies for different platforms. So if I'm a bank, I can turn to one supplier to provide all the connections I need? Largely, yes. One of the things that you need here is a layer above it that manages these integrations as well, right? And that gives you oversight of what's connected to what and which systems are down and how it's all performing, etc. I kind of get that, but what is that? Is that dashboards? Yeah, it's dashboards, system level dashboards that also have process information. So you might say I've processed 5,000 mortgage applications today, 200 are in the high priority workflows, right? Whereas 4,000 have been approved, 450 are in the fraud detection piece. So you want to know more detail about where stuff is because now it lives across multiple systems. It's not just in one place, et cetera. So again, if you're a big bank, the benefit is simplification, but does that equal lower cost efficiencies or you know, better customer experience? What's the kind of argument for doing it beyond simplification? Again, there's a couple of things here that are important. One is the agility with which you can create these integrations. If you're using lots of different technology, you end up with pockets of different skills and lots of vendor relationships. You can simplify this stuff by going with fewer vendors, you know, one composable vendor, and starting to consolidate your skills in one place. That's an immediate saving that you're not dealing with lots of separate vendors. Secondly, architecturally, you're dealing with one set of technologies that spans multiple systems. Again, you're simplifying and reducing your cost. But the key outcome is your agility, once you have this in place, to move systems in and out. Things like fraud detection, they're always evolving. Before they were very, you know, programmatic in the way that you created an algorithm to detect fraud. Now they're much more AI based. You know, you may have a legacy vendor that didn't move into the AI space. Now you want to take somebody that's more advanced in that kind of capability. So you want to swap them in and out. So there's this agility piece that's key to understand and facilitate. And then the other side of it is just managing the model of banking in effect. And this is where organizations like Bayan have created a logical model of what banking actually is. And it's not just about your products like loans and deposits, but it's also about the other areas for running a bank, including things like HR, 
finance, sales, marketing, and all of the technology support around that. So what Bayern have done is to create a map of the entirety of running and operating a bank into a set of services or modules. Now banks can kind of align with that map, right? To start to see where their systems fit and which bits they've got covered, right? They can also use that map then to start to say, well, actually what we call credit risk is called this in the buy-in landscape. And there are five other vendors we could go to to kind of bring in new and advanced capability. So I think having a complete picture of what the architecture needs to be in a set of services that are generic and then saying, well, okay, but what we've actually got is this and this software component actually maps over to three of the services within Bayan. So if we were to replace this vendor, we'd have to get three other bits of software. Wow. So it really helps you to start manage your entire estate. It sounds like a real step forward. Well, look, I feel like I now understand it a lot more. I'm going to go back and read your article and go into more detail. But thank you so much, Dom. I really enjoyed listening to that. You made so much sense. And I think we're going to be doing another couple of these. So in a couple of weeks time, we're going to be talking about open banking, demystifying that a bit more, and also open finance. So I look forward to chatting to you about those in due course. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dom Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.